Well, good morning, Melly Park. It's good to be here with you this morning. Good to hear you sing. You, you uh, maybe you hear it in the back cut. I don't know, but man, it's so nice to be up here in front and to hear the chorus of the church singing together. It's a beautiful sound. So, so glad to do that together. But as you know, we're in the Book of Acts, and over the last several weeks, we have uh, been introduced to some really interesting characters. There's Philip the outcast, you remember, a man who fled persecution in Jerusalem only to become an evangelist in Samaria, leading a a tremendous revival to a new part of the world, having heard the gospel. Then there's Simon the magician, a highly successful performer. We know that all the the people from young and old looked up to him and, and recognized him. And yet, he was a man who was more interested in having authority over the Spirit than allowing the Spirit to have authority over him. He had lived so much of his life as the center of attention (laughs) that he couldn't bring himself to worship someone else. And then there's Saul, a man on a mission. A mission ultimately to destroy the church, going house to house, synagogue to synagogue, arresting and condemning those who put their faith in Christ. But as I thought about these characters this week, I thought, you know, probably more important than understanding what we learn about these people is appreciating what these people teach us about Jesus. What do they teach us about who God is and how He's at work? For example, we learn from Philip. He teaches us that God doesn't need us to to have a seminary degree to be effective in ministry. In fact, he does some of his very best work through everyday people. People who listen to what God has to say. People who are willing to go wherever God might lead. People who live that Ephesians 2.10 lifestyle, right? Where they see the good works that God has prepared beforehand and they faithfully walk right in the middle of them. See, the church is expanding in the book of Acts not because of any work of man. It's not a discipleship-making movement. It's not evangelism explosion. It's not any strategic plan. It is a work of God. Now, we may plant and we may, may water, but the Scripture's clear. Only God causes to grow. We know that sometimes the ministry takes place to the multitudes. At other times, it's one-on-one across from a table, sitting side-by-side or across from someone else, but either effort, whatever form it takes, has equal value in the eyes of God. You see, from God's perspective, success in ministry is not determined by the size of the impact. God is responsible for the size of the impact through the faithfulness of His people. Everyday people, just like me and you. We also learn through Simon the Magician that Christianity is more about humble submission than it is signs and wonders. In fact, if you remember, Jesus even said, an evil and adulterous generation craves signs and wonders. Because here's the reality. If the wonder of the resurrection is not enough, then no sign will ever convince you. God has revealed enough about who He is and what He came to do to bring us to a place of trusting in Him. 
saving faith is ultimately a decision to trust in Him more than you trust yourself. And then there's Saul. What does Saul teach us? I think one of the things we see is that Saul teaches us that God is fully aware of everything that is happening in the world around us. He is deeply uh, knowing of what is happening with Saul and the, the painful persecution that he is causing at this point in history. And yet, God has the power to change all of that in an instant, as we'll see this morning. He's a God of divine interruptions. And those interruptions are always an invitation to trust. And trusting that no one is so far from God that they cannot be brought near. And that there is no situation that is so broken that it cannot be redeemed. Trusting that God is always at work. And that He will fulfill His plan for infinite good. When we look at these stories of the Bible and understand these people involved in these stories, we need to see that that's what they tell us about who God is and how He's at work. Not just then, but just as much now. So before we continue to look at our study in the book of Acts, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, would you continue to expand our understanding of who you are, your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your love, your forgiveness, your hope. Father, as we come to you this morning, we know that we come in so many different places. Some have had a great week and praise God. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And there are some who keep getting bad news. Hmm. And we weep with those who weep. But no matter how we come this morning, we know that there is a truth that you want us to hear that comforts our heart, that gives us an understanding of who you are, that draws us in close to your loving, faithful, generous care. And so, Father, I pray that we find ourselves there this morning as we open your word and listen to your truth. May it sink deeply into our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 9. And let's pick up where we left off and read with me, if you would, chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We see here in these first two verses that Saul was motivated by a murderous hatred. We already looked at the fact that he was hostile ultimately to the name of Jesus. But to his credit, he was hostile because he understood the claims of Christ. He knew that Jesus said, I have the power to forgive sins. He knew that Jesus said, I have eternally existed and I am one with the Father. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said, I and the Father am one. He claimed equality with God. And even before his death, he said, I will rise again. And I have the power of eternal life. 
See, Saul was hostile to the name of Jesus because he didn't believe any of those things were true. He believed he was doing God a favor by destroying those who looked to Jesus, the imposter in his mind, for salvation. His mission in life was to silence the message of the gospel. And there were no limits to to the lengths that he would go. We see here in our passage that he's gotten approval from the high priest to to go as far as Damascus. He doesn't even know if there's Christians there. Because it says in verse 2, if he found any belonging to the way, he would bring them back to Jerusalem. See, Saul is trying to get ahead of this movement. He wants to to keep the church from expanding. He'll go as far as Damascus if he has to, and then just work his way back, systematically silencing those who put their faith in Christ alone. The letter from the high priest gives him permission to expedite both men and women bound, tied up, chains, treated like criminals, back to Jerusalem where they will be put on trial for blasphemy. Because in the mind of of Saul and the other religious leaders, to believe in Jesus was an offense against God because they understood what the Christians claimed, that Jesus is God. But in the midst of all the efforts, Saul had no idea to what extent the gospel has already extended. He wasn't aware of the Ethiopian eunuch who would now take the message of the gospel into Africa. He didn't know about the believers in Damascus who were already growing in their faith. In the end, Saul had no ability to destroy the church because, as we've said, the expansion of the church is a work of God. Now, I wonder if there was any point in time in the midst of all this that that Saul didn't stop and and just think for a moment about what his, his rabbi had to say about this matter. You remember when Peter and, and John and the other apostles were preaching in Jerusalem, the religious leaders got together and they had a discussion about how are we going to put an end to this. And you remember in that conversation, one of the men who spoke up was a man by the name of Gamaliel. Now Gamaliel was Paul's mentor, Saul's mentor. It, it was the rabbi that he learned under. Okay, let me remind you of what Gamaliel had to say in that discussion. Just listen to these words. It's in Acts chapter 5, verse 38. Listen to these words. Gamaliel speaking says, And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So clearly, Saul was unwilling to take the advice from his own mentor because he didn't stay away. He didn't leave them alone. He was motivated by the the prideful opinion that he had the power to destroy the church. But little did he know his mentor was right. Saul was fighting a losing battle. Because ultimately, he was fighting against God. Look at how it continues in verse 3. 
came about as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told to you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither, neither ate nor drank. Everything that we've read up to this point says that that Saul is persecuting the church, that he is ravaging the church. But here we see Jesus ask the question, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We know it's Jesus. Later in the same chapter in verse 17, Ananias speaking says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. We also know from Saul's own testimony later in his life, he will talk about having been confronted by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. See, Saul's mission was to destroy the church. But the church is the body of Christ. And this is a lesson that he certainly has learned because later on in his letter to the Ephesians, listen to what he writes to them in chapter 1, verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, speaking of Jesus, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, listen, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Saul, when you are persecuting the church, you are persecuting me. Because the church is the body of Christ. Saul's mission to destroy the church was divinely interrupted by Jesus. God took the initiative and literally stood in his way. Saul, in that moment, it says, was completely surrounded by a light from heaven. And I think we can interpret that clearly as the glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ that completely surrounded him in that moment. And he knew it was of divine nature because what did he do? He immediately falls to the ground, face to the ground. And I just wonder, as his face was to the ground, hearing that divine revelation, not knowing who it was and asking, Lord, who is it who who speaks to me? Can you imagine as his heart sinks as he heard the words, it's me. Jesus. Everything he once denied now stood before him. The risen Christ. The radiance of God's glory. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Saul, Jesus says, I'm the one who stands before you. I don't want you to to miss the overwhelming grace that we see taking place in this encounter. God takes the initiative, a a divine interruption, an invitation to trust. He didn't berate him, make a fool of him, 
laugh at him. He invites him. The one fighting against him is trust him. He's offering the gift of eternal life. This man was so quick to deny, don't miss the overwhelming grace of this moment. See, Saul doesn't deserve this kind of treatment after all he's done. He, he deserves punishment, not forgiveness. But here's what we need to know to be true. We don't deserve forgiveness and grace any more than he did. And yet, we too have been invited to trust. Jesus simply says, continue on your journey to Damascus. And from there, I'll, I'll tell you what you need to do. It says that the men who were with him heard the voice, but they didn't see anything. The only thing they saw was this man of great religious authority on his face in humble submission before God. I think it's interesting if you listen to this account through the words of Paul himself as he came to be known. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Keep your finger there in, verse, in chapter 9, but let's listen to this together. Uh, look at this together in verse 12 of Acts chapter 26. This is, this is Saul accounting what happened here in Acts chapter 9 as a part of his ministry later on explaining what happened on that day. Listen as I read, beginning in verse 12. While thus engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that you may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Saul, blinded by the glory of God, now appointed by God to give sight to the spiritually blind. It's my belief that Saul put his faith in Christ in this moment. He accepted the invitation to die to himself, relinquishing his control, putting his faith in Christ alone. We know that he later writes to the Philippians and says, whatever is gained for me, whatever was gained for me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, which is what he prided himself in for, for so many years. He says, no, I put my faith in Christ alone. And the power of his resurrection, which he saw 
with his very own eyes when the risen Christ stood before him. Look at uh, verse 10 in our passage, chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise, go to a street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to the saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority to, from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. Now, again, don't miss the fact that there are disciples in Damascus. <laughs> there are people in Damascus who know and are following Christ. Christians who are eager to obey. The gospel was spreading from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. As we know, into Ethiopia, northern Africa, now into Damascus. From everyday people like Philip and Ananias. People who are eager to obey. In fact, did you notice Ananias' first reaction when the voice of the Lord spoke to him? Here I am, Lord. What does Saul say? Who are you, Lord? Ananias knew the Lord. He had walked faithfully with the Lord. He'd understand the word of God. And when that word was spoken to him, his first response was eager obedience. He didn't say, Lord, hold on just a minute. Just let me get some affairs in order. I need to get some stability in my job. I've got high school kids. I need to get them off to college. Let me just get my life in order, and then I'm all ears. Not what he said. In fact, he said, I'm willing to go before Jesus ever told him what he wanted him to do. He was eager to obey. Jesus gave him specific directions. Go to a street called Straight, to a house of a man named Judas where you find a, a person from Tarsus named Saul. And when you find him, he will be praying. One of the things I love about the Bible is the detail with which it speaks. It's not some ambiguous description. This is very, very detailed, isn't it? In fact, if you were to go to Damascus today, this exact street still exists. It runs east to west to the main part of the city, and it is the street in which there was a house of a man named Judas. But as you can imagine, as Ananias was hearing the instruction, he was beginning to put two and two together, and he said, okay, I think I've heard about this guy. He's been commissioned by the religious leaders to bring harm to people who are called by your name, P people like me, <laughs> Are we talking about the same guy here? Look at how he continues in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. See, Ananias describes Saul as an enemy. Jesus describes him as a chosen instrument. Here we see that no one is so far from God that they cannot be brought near. An enemy of Christ will in an instant become 
a devoted disciple of Christ. An opponent of the church will become one of the, the church's most influential leaders in history. And I want you to notice how Jesus describes his ministry. In verse 16, he says that his ministry will be filled with suffering. Jesus is very realistic about what it means to be a, a disciple, what it means to follow Christ. In fact, he's very upfront about considering the cost. In fact, in Luke chapter 14, he's speaking to his disciples and a group of people. And listen to the words of Jesus as he's talking about the decision to put their trust in him. He says this. For which one of you, when you want to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it all, who observe it and begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what about a king when he sets out to meet another king in battle? Will he not first sit down and take con uh, counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He surrenders. <laughs> so therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Becoming a Christian is ultimately about surrendering control. It's about trusting God more than you trust yourself. Counting the cost and deciding to rely on God's provision more than your plans. To trust in His faithfulness more than your possessions. To relinquish control and agree to follow where He leads no matter where He says to go. Even eager to obey before you even learn what it is that he wants you to do. Being a Christian is not a guarantee for a life of health and prosperity. I know that's what we often hear from pulpits just like this around the world. But that's not the promise of Scripture. The Scripture does not say that following Jesus will make your life easier. But it does say it will make your life better. Because even in the midst of the reality of pain and suffering that exists in this world that no one in this room can avoid, you have hope. And no matter what you encounter, nothing can take that hope away. That's a promise. And Jesus is saying, consider the cost and cling to the hope. Because that's what you're committing to. Look at how he continues in verse 17, and Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he arose and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. Despite the obvious risk to his life, Ananias was faithfully obeying Jesus. He enters the house, he lays hands on Saul. And do you notice how he greeted him? He addresses him as brother. He says, brother Saul, he 
looks at Saul not based on his reputation, but on the revelation from Jesus. Believing in who Saul will be, not in who he has been. See, again, I believe Saul surrendered three days ago on that road to Damascus. And the reason he receives the Spirit in this moment is because of that decision of faith. And we know that this conversion of Saul, much like we talked about with Samaria, is going to create a controversy. And so God appoints Ananias to be a witness to the sincerity of his faith, the filling of the Holy Spirit in Saul's life. We know that in that moment, scales fell from his eyes. His sight returned. He's a new creation in Christ. Old things have gone. New things have come. Instead of being hostile to the name of Jesus, he will now proclaim life in the name of Jesus. Much like the Ethiopian eunuch, what we see from Saul is very similar. His first act of obedience is baptism. It's what he knew the Christians were all about. But this was not only a a baptism as a public profession of faith, it was a baptism that now entered him into the community of faith. It said for the next several days, he stayed there in Damascus and fellowshiped with the believers that he had gone to condemn. He sat across the table, shared meals because of a new life in Christ, and it had changed everything. In fact, it says that he now goes from synagogue to synagogue. Instead of arresting those who believe in Jesus, he went into the synagogue to proclaim that everything they said is actually true. That he is the Son of God. The one who eternally exists. The one who is equal with God. The one who has been raised from the dead in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. (laughs) Can you imagine, just stop for a minute and put yourself in that synagogue. When you see Saul walk in the door fully expecting him, to interrogate anyone who might believe in the name of Jesus Christ, to condemn their claims, only to find him saying, those claims are actually true. And I know they're true. Because I have seen the risen Christ with my very own eyes. Wow. What what an incredible moment. What a powerful testimony that might have been. Now, with that being said, I think this is where we encounter one of the challenges of a, of a study like Acts. We have this tendency to, to kind of separate ourselves from the story. It's kind of like watching a documentary, right, where you can be moved by the story but know that you really don't belong in the story. Well, I, I'm here to tell you this morning, that is not true when it comes to the stories of the Bible. We belong in those stories because they are our stories too. Everyone in this room, to a person, has had a divine interruption in their life. And it included an invitation to trust in the Lord. Just like we see with Saul. Saul, or God, is inviting you to to trust in him. See, I distinctly remember when I was a sophomore in high school, attending a Fellowship of Christian Athletes meeting, surrounded by people that I didn't know very well, other than my coach who I was there to impress. 
I remember hearing these stories of the Bible. I'd grown up in the church. I knew those stories well, but I always felt like they were stories about other people. And then I began to realize that a lot of the questions they were asking were my questions too. A lot of the struggles they were having were my struggles too. Begin to realize that he wasn't just inviting David and, and, and Saul and, and Moses and Abraham to trust in him. He was inviting me to trust in him. And not just as a sophomore in high school. Seven years into our marriage, when things weren't happening like I thought they should, he asked me again, do you trust me? When we desperately wanted a family, couldn't have kids, couldn't figure out what was going on, he interrupted our life and he said, do you trust me? He interrupted my career as a hospital administrator. He stood right in my path to success. And he said, do you trust me? Our life is filled with divine interruptions. And every one of those interruptions comes with an invitation. Do you trust me? It's an invitation to put, put aside the personal plans and trust in the promises of God. And let's be clear about the one in whom we place our trust. We are trusting in a God who is intimately involved in our daily lives, who is not distant and unapproachable, but he dwells near. We are trusting in a God who, as we see from this passage, is able to break into unbreakable zones. There is no one ever so far from following Christ that they cannot be brought near. And I know that there are families in this church this morning who have people that they love that are far from God. And you don't give up hope. Because Saul is teaching us there is never anyone so far from God that they cannot be brought near. We also need to be reminded that there is never a situation so broken that the Lord cannot redeem. Some of you are in marriages, you're in families, you're in jobs, you're in school situations where you say, there is no way out of this. And I'm here to tell you that God has a way of making a way. And that is who you are putting your trust in. God is present in our suffering. He is the source of our joy. He wants us to trust in Him so that He can work in our life in a way that is a blessing to the world around us so that others may come to know Him and may worship Him as they see in us in our daily lives. But as we've talked about on a Sunday morning like this many times, the pace of life in the world in which we live is not conducive to seeing interruptions. We move right past them. And so I want you to just take some time this morning to consider that maybe you being here this morning is a divine interruption. And maybe you being here this morning is the Lord speaking to your heart and asking you, will you trust me? And so I want you to just think for a minute, what is an area in your life where the Lord may be asking you, will you trust me? Larry, will you trust me? Tom, will you trust me? Kyla. 
Do you trust me? Maybe you're in a difficult place in your marriage. Will you trust me? Maybe school is really hard. And you're not sure how that's going to work. Maybe he's asking. Will you trust me? Sometimes we're anxious and fearful. I was talking to Tom this morning. And I asked the Lord this weekend. Terry and I talked about this. I said, you know, one of the things that is the downside of caring deeply for people is carrying the burdens that they carry with them and the pain that that includes. It's hard for me to, to hear something <laughs> about somebody, what somebody's going through, and not <laughs> feel that in my own chest. And I can be overcome by anxious and anxiety from someone else's experience because I love them. And the Lord's asking me in that moment, hey, Todd, do you trust me? Am I, am I near to them? Am I sufficient to comfort them? So this morning, we're just going to take a little bit of time. And I want you to ask yourself, what is the area in your life where God is asking you, do you trust me? And would you be willing in this moment to respond in him a way that you say, yes, I'm willing to trust you in ways that don't seem imaginable, things that seem unfathomable. But if who you are is, if who the Bible says you are is really true, then you can do all things. You sovereignly are in control. Your plan for infinite good will be accomplished. I can trust you. And so just take a moment to consider what that is for you. What is the area of your life where he's asking, Stacy, will you trust me? Well, I am here to proclaim to you this morning He is worthy of your trust. And no matter where you are and where He's calling you, you can trust in Him. His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. That is the God we serve. And I pray that you walk faithfully with Him, eager to obey, as you see Him at work through you, in you, for the glory of His name. Amen? Have a great day.